would you turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 5 of the letter to the Romans? Uh, we have been studying through the book of Romans. This is our eighth week into it. And we're talking about what I've entitled the path of peace. Uh, peace is kind of like water. The, the poet said, water, water everywhere, and there's not a drop to drink. And there's a lot of conversation about peace in the world, but there seems to be so little of it in reality, especially on a personal level. Would you stand with me, if you don't mind, as we begin by reading this passage, the first 11 verses, where Paul begins with a therefore, which in other words is kind of a conclusive a conjunction. Because of everything we've said before this, he says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his, this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, anyone, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? And not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I ask as we reflect and consider this passage that we've just read, that your Holy Spirit would really speak to each of us, Lord. We, every one of us comes into this room, and we may look together on the outside, but we know within our own lives, within our own experience, that there are things that really need the touch of God, the hand of God. We all are in need of the miraculous power of God to make a difference in our world. And so, Lord, we, we invite you to start that miracle in each of us today by opening our hearts and our minds to the truths and realities that are found in you alone. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As soon as he turned 18 years of age, Hiro Onodo enlisted in the Imperial Army of Japan. The year was 1944. He was the direct descendant of ancient samurai warriors, and like his forefathers, he had vowed that in combat he would never surrender, but he would either give his life through combat or through suicide in service of Japan's god-man emperor Hirohito. He was trained as an intelligence officer and commando and was immediately sent to the Philippines to help the imperial troops stop the American assault that was being brought upon that island. But unable to do so, the imperial army evacuated the island. 
But Anoda, along with a small band of soldiers, was ordered to stay behind and to do everything they could to slow the advance of the enemy troops through a commando attacks and sabotage or whatever else they could do. He was ordered specifically that under no circumstances was he to surrender or to take his own life. His commanding officer instead promised, whatever happens, we'll come back for you. And so Lieutenant Onoda carried on despite the fact that leaflets were repeatedly dropped by American aircraft communicating in the Japanese language that the war was over and that all Japanese soldiers should lay down their arms and surrender to any local authority. But Onoda didn't believe it was true. He believed it was trickery. And so he continued to hide in the mountains, stealing, robbing, sabotaging, often killing soldiers and other policemen and whoever he saw as a threat because he was continuing to wage war against the Americans and the Philippines. And he did this for the next 30 years. Almost 50 years of age in the year 1974, a Japanese hippie by the name of Norio Suzuki began traveling the world and he said he was going to do two, three things. Number one, he was going to find Lieutenant Onoda, who had become kind of legendary by this point. That he also was going to see a panda and the abominable snowman. He may have done the second. I doubt he was able to accomplish the third. But despite building a strong friendship with Anoda after he had found him, Anoda still refused to surrender because he was under orders not to do so. And so the Japanese government finally found his last surviving commanding officer, flew him to the Philippines, and they went into the jungles, and there he gave the orders to Onoda that he should lay down his weapons and he should surrender. He turned over his samurai sword, his still-functioning rifle with 500 rounds of ammunition, several hand grenades, and a dagger that his mother had given him in 1944 when he went off to war so that if he happened to be captured, he would be able to commit harakari or suicide and honor his samurai heritage. Ever since I've heard that story many years ago, it's one that has fascinated me because in a way, like Lieutenant Onoda, our war with God ended the moment that Jesus died on the cross. And when I believed that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for all of my sins and transgressions, from that very moment, I knew that God had made peace with mankind, and specifically that he had made peace with me. Yet many times, I have not felt peace inside. There can many times been a battle raging inside of my own soul over something that is transpiring. And it's easy to begin to think as the fiery darts of the enemies are flying into your personal world to feel like there isn't any peace, at least in this life, but you're going to be always engaged in a pitched battle against forces that rarely do you see coming and even more rarely, do you really have a sense of how to respond? 
On a human level, uh, this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus, uh, the, excuse me, the Jew, before Jesus found you and me, basically, as the writer Colossians said, he says, we were alienated from God and we were enemies of God in our minds. Paul told Timothy that that was because we had been entrapped by the devil, that we had been taken captive by him to do his will. And as a consequence, Paul would later say in Romans 8 that the mind, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It can't even do so. And even as a result, our thinking becomes kind of twisted. Our minds become, well, as Paul said to the Ephesians, we become darkened in our understanding. We become separated from the life of God due to the hardening of our hearts. An amazing series of events that things become dark. It's no longer crystal clear. It's no longer simple. The obvious is no longer obvious. Right and wrong is no longer clear. Lines begin to get blurred and fuzzy. And many times we can even get to the point where we call good evil and we call evil thing good. And we feel that separation from God, that there is this void in my life, that something is missing. And, you know, if you live long enough, eventually you weary of trying to stuff something in the void to satisfy the longing. And you might get desperate enough to say, isn't there anything else? But that separation becomes a huge gap. It may, in the beginning, seem like just a little furrow that, between you and God, but as the years go on, it's like looking across the Grand Canyon. You know there is another side, but there you also know there's no way that you could ever get across to it. Because without even trying, we become enemy combatants of God, not because we necessarily consciously decide that we're going to be the enemy of God. We just find that we're at odds with so many things that he favors and he wants. And that's why Paul would say that eventually by nature we become the objects of wrath. In other words, when you think about what your ultimate destiny was going to be, there's this eerie sense, or as Peter put it, there's this fearful sense of judgment that is coming. That there's something out there and it's not going to be good. No wonder, as I thought about myself before I gave my life to Christ, I felt, as Jesus described it, harassed, helpless, like sheep, without a shepherd. You know what a sheep without a shepherd is, don't you? Yeah, lamb chops. It's... I know for myself I was miserable because without knowing it, I was actually at war with God. And then Christ came. In fact, the way Paul puts it in verse 6, he says, just at the right time. It's one thing about God's timing. He's never late. But he's also never early. And that's the frustrating part. I want God to show up right now. <laughs> no, he's always, it's always just the right time. He said, when we were still powerless, literally that word powerless there means weak and to be infirmed and to be feeble. Uh, I might render it as being sin sick, soul sad, and spiritually stuck. When I was in a place where I was sin sick and my soul was sad and I was stuck spiritually, he says, Christ died for the ungodly, which is another way of describing an enemy of God. He died for those who were his enemies, so that when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, he's not telling us to do something that he has not already done. 
In fact, that is exactly what he did. As we were in opposition, when we were the opponents of God, God was loving us. When we weren't thinking about him at all, we were the constant obsession of his focus and concern. And Paul goes on to explain how crazy hard this whole thing can be to grasp because he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. The term there means simply somebody who is innocent. How many times people have known that somebody has been convicted for a crime that they did not commit, that they're innocent of the charges, and yet oftentimes people say, if, if I say anything, I will become indicted, so I won't even put myself in that position. He says it just doesn't happen. People don't put themselves in the line for somebody just because they're innocent. But he goes on and he says, though for a good man, and the good man means somebody who is extraordinarily good. We'd say somebody who is noble and who is lovable and, and generous. Someone might possibly dare to die. Now, I know most of us view ourselves as being much more noble than that. We might think of, well, that's probably true of 99% of the folks out there, but that's not true of me. Uh, let me tell you, let's be honest, it's true of you too. It's very, it's very rare. And that's why we give medals, especially in combat, when we see men and women who willingly sacrifice their own life, you know, the, almost throwing themselves on explosive devices to shield their mates. This is something that's so extraordinary in human life because if there is something that's going to go boom and throw shrapnel, my instinct is to run as fast as I can in whatever direction will guarantee that it doesn't reach me. And it still is a puzzlement to me, those moments when you see people who actually do the opposite, who, who shield someone from the bullets or throw their body knowing that certain death is going to come. It's a rare thing. And that's why Paul says when you look at it from a human perspective, it is so unusual that we give these people our highest awards. And yet, he goes on to say, but God demonstrates, literally puts on public display his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, the word there can be translated literally preeminently sinful, especially wicked, stained with vices and crimes. I mean, we're not even close to being a righteous man or woman. We're way on the other extreme of bad behavior and he says that even though we were that far off the chart in badness, Christ came and he died for us. Christ died for our sins. And just like that, in a moment, <laughs> I who was once so very, as the writer of Ephesians says, far away, was brought near through the blood of Christ. I, who had been God's enemy, suddenly, like Abraham, became God's friend. 
I, who had been in conflict with God, was now, quote, in peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, who had been cut off from God, now had gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, the grace that the writer of Hebrews described as something he said, come boldly or confidently with full assurance of faith to the throne of grace, the place where God dispenses mercy and gives help. I who once was so far away now can come boldly, confidently, with this assurance that I'm not going to be turned away or rejected. That in other words, when I cry out to God in my prayer life and say, God, I need a miracle right now, I am immediately given access into the very throne room of God's holy presence. As if I am the only being in the universe, God is all ears and He's all heart and he's all willing. And from that very instant, he begins to move in my behalf. That's why I, I'm, I'm a big fan of prayer, because I have discovered over and over again that prayer literally moves heaven and earth. And the explanation for that power is only that God has given access because of what Jesus did. That I who was hopeless and helpless now could rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And all of it because like Abraham that we talked about last week, I simply believe by faith the promises that he made. That God makes all these promises to us in the Scriptures. And when I read that, that all things work together for the good. When I read that when two or more agree on touching any one thing. When he says, ask in my name and my Father will give it to you. And on and on the promises. I believe those promises and my actions reveal my faith because I act upon those things. And here's the thing is one of the actions that shows that we believe is when God brings peace into our life. Now, instantaneously in that moment when I believed, and very powerfully, a series of events begin to take place that really eternally alters your relationship with God. I mean, you don't necessarily see it, you may not even feel it, but there are significant things that change in that instant when you say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins and come into my heart. Give me the gift of eternal life. That eternal life is not something that I have to die to attain to, but eternal life begins at the moment that I ask Christ into my heart. His eternal spirit indwells me and begins to move my life in a direction that is consistent with his purpose and his will for me, not only in time, but ultimately and eventually into eternity itself. That first of all, Paul would say in verse 10, I was reconciled to him through the death of his son. Uh, the word reconciled, there's actually an accounting term. It's like when you have two columns and debit and credit, you know, and you're adding them up and suddenly you come up with the sum that you need and it balances out. It's when you have a debt that you owe and you pay the balance and now the balance has been paid off. It's the very thing that Jesus was speaking of when he is expiring on the cross and he utters, it is finished, teleteleslai. In the Greek, it literally means paid in full. The account has been satisfied. The debt is resolved. He says, when I believed, 
I became reconciled because I looked to his death on the cross. Conflict changed to harmony. Fighting became friendship. Friendly relationships were restored. Literally, God and me became compatible. Whereas before, we had irreconcilable differences and could not be compatible. But secondly, Paul says, I was justified by his blood shed on the cross. The word justified, we've talked about before, but someone once crypt said, it, 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 it's just as if you never sinned. It's really God's declaration that you are no longer guilty. You've been acquitted of all the crimes that you've committed. And not only that, he thoroughly says to me in, in verses 9 and 10 that I have been saved from God's wrath. It all kind of adds together because if I have been reconciled to God, it's because I have been justified by God. And if I've been justified by God, then I am saved from the wrath that would have been mine had I never been justified and never been reconciled. And essentially what he's telling us is the war and the worry that goes with that war is over. We're at peace with God. So why aren't you? So why aren't you? One thing I know for sure is there is a lot of us, maybe all of us, who, who came in here this morning and we know that we have peace with God and yet we may have peace with God but we don't necessarily feel the peace of God in our own hearts. And we ask the question, what's the disconnect? Let me illustrate it from the Gospels, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus comes down to the boat and he says to the fellas, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, something you have to understand about the Sea of Galilee, it's actually a large part of a body of water that is subject to sudden and horrific storms. I've been on there a few times where it was flat out scary as the waves are crashing over the top of the boat. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And these guys are fishermen with experience, and they're going, not advisable, just go. So out they go. Jesus lays down, starts taking a nap, falls asleep. Suddenly it says the wind begins to come up because it comes between this from the north down to the south. It just like a funnel, it flows through with the mountains on each side. Suddenly the waves begin to pick up. The waves begin to crash. So you get the wind, and you get the waves, and you got these guys <clears throat> who are having to change their depends. Because all of a sudden, they're realizing the water coming into the boat is faster than we can bail it out. And they run and they wake in Jesus and say, don't you care that we're dying? <laughs> and I love Jesus wakes up, looks around, he says, peace, be still. Wind stops, waves stop, the lake, lake goes flat. And he turns around on his way back to his pillow and said, oh, you of little faith. And I look at that and go, that's me. <laughs> How many storms have rolled unexpectedly, certainly uninvited and unwelcome, have rolled into your life, usually at the worst time, sometimes when we're doing God's bidding, and it rolls in and it just shakes and it rattles and it rolls your life. And you think, this is going to take me down. 
This is going to work. I can't do this. I, I don't have anything else. I'm, I'm out of sticks. I'm out of carrots. I'm out of bullets. Whatever metaphor you want to use, I'm up the creek without a paddle I'm, or with a pole or whatever the metaphor is. I, I'm just really stuck here now, and I, I, I just don't know what to do. God, if you don't show up, nothing's going to save me. And suddenly, it's as if God says, I was kind of waiting for that desperation to come. I was waiting for that kind of desperateness of soul so that you would say, God, only you, so that I could say, how right you are, peace. And I would think that after that miracle, these guys would have said, wow, that was heavy. I'm never going to worry ever again. (laughs) They spent the rest of the trip going, who is this guy? <laughs> is he safe? <laughs> in fact, peace was gone in a moment. The peace that they wanted from the externals in their life came and, and, and was given them by God, and yet within moments, they're wrestling again, kind of like you and I do. You know, it's kind of like, Lord, I don't know how we're going to make the mortgage or the rent this month. And God, unless you provide, we don't know what we're going to do. And you go out to the mailbox, you find this strange envelope, you open up, and there's all the money. You go, oh, God, you're so good. Thank you, Jesus. You got us through this month. But what are we going to do next month? (laughs) I'm glad you chuckled because you're admitting that that's you. (laughs) We do this stuff. Will Will he do it tomorrow? Will he do it next year? Can I count on him? for the rest of my life? Or was this just a one-off? Maybe it was just coincidence. I mean, because money shows up in my mailbox all the time. (laughs) Am I being too self-disclosing here? I'm talking about you. I don't do this, right? You get get this, right? I I never struggle like this. This 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 is all on you, right? Or is it just the way we are? Just the way we are. Quite honestly, I have prayed for people with cancer and seen God heal them. Drug addicts healed instantly. But every time I pray for somebody who is struggling with these kind of things, I think to myself, Lord, I hope this works. When it has nothing to do with works, it has everything to do with what God is doing. Well, what we have to understand is that the battle has been won, the enemy has been defeated but the struggle still goes on. Jesus gave us the warning, you know, in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, but I don't give you peace like the world gives you peace. How does the world give me peace? Healthy, wealthy, and wise, nothing goes wrong. Everything works out perfectly. You know, it's like that perfect vacation that you've been planning. How'd that turn out? (laughs) It just takes one flight delay (laughs) to change the whole thing, right? And you begin to realize in this life, things never sync up. Uh, I'm still waiting for any event or experience in my life that I could look back on and say, that was perfect. Because even when I've said that, it's not hard for me to begin to point out, well, this could have been a little better and that could have worked out okay. What I'm saying when I'm saying it's perfect is I'm just choosing not to be discontent. But we live in a broken world. When the Eagles sang that song after 9-11, there's a hole in the world's heart tonight. 
Everybody immediately identified with that. Yeah, because all of us have these spaces and places in our life where there are gaping holes that we say, God, fix this. Jesus said you have to understand that there are times when your life is going to be as perforated as an old wingtip. And there's going to be holes and gaps and things don't come together. And then he says this, but do not let your hearts be troubled. And literally, don't let your heart be tossed all over the place. And do not be afraid. And do not be afraid. Is he saying, don't be afraid? What you need to do is kind of buck it up and prove that you're strong enough to handle this. Bring it on, I can handle it. You know. No. He's saying, do not be afraid because I'll take care of it. I will take care of it. Will you trust me with that? This is why Paul told Timothy, he said, you've got to fight the good fight of faith. So that even though God is at, at peace with you and me, the conflict is no longer between you and me. There's still Lieutenant Onoda out there in the jungle shooting at you. Yeah, I'm changing the illustration now. The devil is kind of like Lieutenant Onoda. He has been defeated. Eventually, he's going to be forced to surrender. He's, he's going to run out of bullets. He's going to run out of stuff. And, and, and his, his fate is fixed even though he refuses to accept it. He knows that he is a defeated foe. But he's still out there blowing up your bridges, stealing your food, shooting at people in your life, even shooting at you. Paul described it in Ephesians 6 as fiery darts that he's shooting at you. So how do we deal with these things in our life when they come? Well, he tells us that he is the God in Romans 8.28. We'll look at that in the future here, but he's the God who causes everything to work together for the good. And that he actually uses the enemy to both further his purpose for your life and to increase the intensity of your joy if you're willing. There's a caveat, if you're willing. You know, it's, we can choose to refuse to allow God to have his way in our life. And all that does is keep us in the same cycle of discouragement. But Paul continues on. That's why he says in verse 3, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, <clears throat> before we move on beyond that, let's define the word sufferings. Intense pressure, oppression, affliction, troubling times, great distress, just stress and pressure on every side. To be straightened, literally the term means, literally mean be squeezed in so that your freedom of movement is being impinged. He said, Paul says, let's go back again and say, make sure, reading it right, because I'm not sure that Paul understood his own word. We rejoice in sufferings. How many of us do that with any degree of regularity? <laughs> I have willed myself to rejoice in suffering. God, I'm going to praise you in spite of the fact that I do not want to. I, I believe in honesty with God. I tell him, God, you know, I really am kind of angry with you. 
that this is even happening. And Paul says, no, we rejoice. Well, how do you get to that place where difficult things happen, bad news comes into your life, things are contrary to your world? How do you, in the world, get to a place where you're actually saying, I'm rejoicing in what is going on? Not that the thing is good. It's not good. It's it's bad in every way. And yet, somehow, I am so confident of God and His peaceful intentions towards me that I'm going to actually find joy in it. Well, he goes on to say, because suffering produces perseverance. In other words, we might just say that we become more determined, or I like the word phrase just simply, suffering makes you tough. It just makes you tough. But secondly, he says that that toughness begins to build character, that there's a maturity, a strengthening that begins to take place, and there's a maturity in your, in your, that becomes, marks you as a man or woman of character, followed by character producing hope. Hope is this, this confidence, it's this expectancy. Someone once said, it's not, the problem with expectations is you know what the result is that you want to get, and you're looking for that thing. We live not in expectation, we live in anticipation. Anticipation means I know something wonderful is going to happen. I just don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is, but I know something wonderful is going to happen. So here I am. I find myself suddenly being, becoming stronger and tougher. I become more mature. I, I, I find myself becoming more hopeful that I'm looking for that silver lining that God has behind this dark cloud. And then he says, but, and as you do that, something happens on the inside. He says, that hope does not disappoint, which is probably, to me, one of the most important phrases in the whole section here. Because it's being disappointed that scares us the most. What if I trust God? What if I do what God's telling me to do? What if I take this step of faith that I think God's telling me to take, and what if it ends up falling through? What if it fails? What if it doesn't work out? Then I've lost everything. And he comes back and says, you need to understand when God is doing this in your life, he never lets you down. He never disappoints you. He never fails you. He always comes through. Because he said, God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And the effect of that is it intensifies our joy. Have you ever made that connection in your own mind between being intensely loved by somebody and joy? They go hand in hand. You don't have to try to be joyful when you know somebody intensely loves you. Wives, husbands, you know it. Here's a secret, guys. You know why wives get so giddy when you surprise them with a gift? <laughs> Especially if it's something that they've really wanted. And suddenly you show up with this and say, here, I, I made sacrifices that I could give this to you. And then they get all giddy. And the reason is because they know that that action was motivated by a depth of love that you feel for her. And the 
joy that she finds, feels afterwards is just a normal response. She doesn't have to work at being joyful. She can't help but have a smile on her face. <gasps> you know? And for me as a guy, it's followed by all sorts of good vibrations. I keep getting those good vibrations. <laughs> but there are really four things I think we need to understand about God's peace in order for it to become something really uh, functional and multidimensional in our own lives. It's simply this. The first thing we need to realize is that it's His peace, not our peacefulness. What I discovered about myself is whenever my life was thrown into chaos because of unexpected troubling things, the first thing I tried to do is figure out how I could get a hold of the handle of this and control it. How do I restore peace to my life? You know, and I, I find myself, do, well, I, I'll, I'll just sit down and I'll read my Bible. And I'll read chapter by chapter, don't feel any peace. Well, for a while I feel better because I'm thinking about what I'm reading and then I finish and then I remember why I started reading the first place and then the peace is gone. So I'm just going to pray, but as I'm sitting there praying, I'm really kind of whining and complaining and griping and, and feeling sorry for myself and I get up after praying for an hour and I don't feel any better about anything because after all, I look around me and the problem's still there. Oh, he didn't have my prayer. What I'll do is I'll fast and I'll, I'll go without food for, for, for long moments. And <laughs> until my wife starts cooking and then I, well, I think that's long enough. <laughs> we do this kind of stuff, don't we, though? Because we're trying to find God's peace someplace within the inner recesses of our own being and it's His peace. I'm not going to find anything in me that's going to make me feel peace in this situation because I have no power. It says again in the passage, He came to us when we were powerless, when we were weaklings. I am weak and powerless against this situation. I'm not going to find peace in me. I've got to find it in Him. It's the transference of responsibility to somebody who can do something about it. But secondly, it's believing His promises, not relying upon your problem-solving abilities. Some of us are good at solving problems, and that can be a negative sometimes. Our ability to take variant bulls by the horn and wrestle them to the ground, whether it be in our homes or our careers or our relationships, and we have this certain skill set that we know how to negotiate this and handle that, and we're just going to step in there. And what we fail to realize is that the reason this is going to get fixed is because God has given us, as Peter said, many and precious promises. He's promised. He wants us to learn to rely upon His promises, not your clever problem-solving abilities. Thirdly, it's His power, not your perfection or lack thereof. You see, we often think, if I, if I could just practice this, if I could work on this, if I could just get on top of this, if I could just manage this, and what we realize is, Lord, 
he, he, as he told Zechariah, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit. His spirit, which is outside of me, begins to move in my life. That's where change comes. It's his power, not my power. And again, all of these things have the same characteristic, don't they? It's always starting with me. And that's why the fourth one, as I say, it's his purpose, not my pipe dreams. And I can't tell you how long I had to search for something that started with a P. <laughs> Pastors are addicted to alliteration. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, his purpose is not necessarily my dreams, my pipe dreams. You know what a pipe dream is? It doesn't mean marijuana. <laughs> it's a guy who's sitting there puffing on his pipe as the smoke curls up and he just lets his mind go where his mind will go. It's not marijuana, it's nicotine. Anyway, but... <laughs> But you understand what I'm talking about? Then most of my greatest disappointments have come because my dreams didn't come true. My life did not unfold as I had wanted to and even planned and worked on. It just kind of took a path other than I had even anticipated. And sometimes we can become so wed to the way we want it to be that we just won't accept the way it is. But you see, there are things that happen the way they do because this is the way God is going to extirpate from our life what He wants. That we end up where He wants us, doing what He wants. Is it all good and fun and pleasant? Not for a moment. In fact, many times it's it's just the radical opposite. Sometimes it's the worst of the worst. And we have those long seasons of languishing and going, God, when? How long? Where are you? Why? And we don't get satisfactory answers most of the time because the answer isn't in the lifting of the problem. The answer is the lifting of the burden from our hearts and giving it to God and saying, God, it's yours. I believe in your promises. I believe in prayer. I I believe in your power. And I want to be conformed to your purpose for my life. And it appears that you are taking me in an entirely different direction than I had planned. Roy and I have some personal, (laughs) we could talk. (laughs) And yet here's the crazy thing. At the end of the day, you look at it and go, God, you knew so much better what you were doing than I did. You knew so much better. The disciples saw Jesus arrested, tortured, nailed to a cross, and die. And what did they do? It says they ran away and they hid. Fearful that the same thing was going to happen to them next. Because in their mind, death was the worst thing that could happen to your life, and death to the one that you had put all of your hope in is the worst thing that could happen to your life. They were in the throes of despair based upon deep disappointment in having believed in someone who couldn't even save his own life. And 36 hours later, he's standing in their midst. Touch my hands, touch my feet. It is I. It's... 
And suddenly it all makes sense. Suddenly the thing that was the worst of the worst becomes the best of the best. My sins are taken because he was taken. That's why the writer of Hebrews put it so simply when he said in the second verse of the 12th chapter, he said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He is both the author, that literally is the pioneer, and the perfecter or the finisher of our faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. That you are in the faith because of Him, and He says, I will finish the work that I began in you from the moment that you believed. So fix your eyes on me instead of fixing on everything else around you, whether it be yourself or someone else or something else. You know. Because regardless of who becomes president, Jesus stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. But God often wants us to be desperate enough to be desperate enough for God more than for anything else. Will God break your heart? <clears throat> In a heartbeat. If your heart is locked on idolatrous things, He'll break your heart in a moment so that your heart will be His and you'll fall in love with Him. Father, I pray that you would help us to not just wrap our minds around these things, Lord, but that there would be something on a more intangible level that would take place in the depths of our hearts. That there would be this gendering of a, a spirit of just believing, a spirit of just trusting that, God, that we would not be those people who always are tossed to and fro by every wind of circumstance that we experience in life, that we have joy when things are going well, we have misery and despair when they are not, and most of the time we live in between those two bookends. Lord, I pray that you would free us, uh, gosh, that, from that spiritual whiplash that we live with, and you just bring us to a place of trust, surrender, Lord, that that we can come to those seasons of saying, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't really even get completely what you're doing, but I believe you. I believe you. That we might be like Job who said in the midst of his incredible suffering and misery that even if he kills me, I will praise him. That confidence that you are a good God. We know that there's an enemy out there in the jungle who's just waiting for a chance to toss a hand grenade into our life or take a shot from his rifle, Lord, and cut us open with his sword. God, don't let us allow our lives to be governed by that. Let us live in the reality that you have won the war. There's peace in your heart towards us on every level. Help us to trust you, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not familiar with how we do things around here, we always kind of continue on for a, a few moments in, in, in worship and in prayer. Um, it's really just an opportunity for you to respond to whatever the Holy Spirit of God may be speaking into your life. 
I, I'm, I have a firm conviction that one of the biggest problems we have is that we hear from God, but we just don't stick around long enough to really think about it. And so we ask you to stick around for a few moments. Your kids are safe, as far as I know. Um, the teachers, on the other hand, <laughs> may be in danger, but your kids are safe at the moment. But don't let this slip away. But just give your chance a chance to just talk to him about what God has spoken. You have a specific thing, something I was sharing with uh, a lot of our, our staff and volunteers this morning as we get together. I said, we need to be mindful that people come in these doors and they may look like they've got it together, but <clears throat> almost all of us are battling something. And, and we're coming in this morning hoping that God touches on that. We, we need to hear from God. And right now, if you haven't even an inkling that God spoke to you, this is the time to stop and say, God, I want you to begin to really anchor this in my heart, that this doesn't become some momentary thing that I remember in the future, but it anchors me to you in ways that will, would literally change how I deal with my life, with the people in my life. If you don't know Jesus... I mean, you've never surrendered your life to him. You've heard about him, maybe, and then maybe not. Well, you're not at peace with God right now. Uh, that wrangling, rustling thing inside your soul that you may have felt even coming in here today is the fact that you're estranged from him because he has, he's, he's dropped the leaflets all over the jungle of your life and said, I've won the battle. And you've read it maybe and said, well, I don't believe it's just trickery. Sorcery! You know, and nothing changes. Because it's only when you take him at his word that you look at the promises he made. He says, if you believe on me, I will give you eternal life. If you believe on me, I will forgive your sins. If you believe on me, I'll give you access to grace you believe on me, you become my child, and I will love you more than a father can love a child, and I will save you. We invite you to partake of the elements of communion as an expression of your faith in him.